exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to John chapter 9. If you've got a pew Bible, it's on page 1064, John chapter 9. Let me remind you that the Gospel of John has a nickname. Sometimes this book that we are studying is called the Book of Signs, because even though Jesus performed countless miracles while he was here on earth, John chose to highlight seven specific miracles that lead up to the miracle of miracles in this gospel, Christ's resurrection. So far, we've seen Jesus turn water to wine. A sick man was cured. A disabled man has walked. 5,000 men, not including women and children, were fed with just five loaves of bread and seven fish. And Jesus himself has walked on water. So now today we turn to the sixth sign of John's gospel, the blind see. But before we read about this amazing miracle, remember, John actually does not refer to these miracles as miracles. What does he call them? He calls them signs. Why does he call them signs? Because the purpose of a sign is to show that something is significant. A sign is meant to point to something greater. And every time Jesus performs a sign, it's meant to reveal something about him to us, to the reader. So as you're reading, you should be thinking, what does this sign tell me about Jesus? So with that being said, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Dear God of all truth, we need your help this morning. All of us born spiritually blind and still are so nearsighted and so forgetful of the truth of your grace. Lord, just as you healed the blind man's eyes, we ask that you would heal our spiritual eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. May your spirit move in this congregation and may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is spoken. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If God is all good and all powerful, why does suffering exist? Growing up, my family was Christian, but we would only go to church Christmas and Easter. And even though we weren't really devout, my parents did teach me a prayer to say at dinner time. Some of you may know it. We'd sit down and say, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Try to make it rhyme. And as a kid, I didn't think much about those words. It was just a ritual that we did, that we went through the motions. But whenever I became a Christian, I came to realize that in that simple prayer, we, we see two amazing Christian truths. That we pray to a God who is all powerful And we pray to a God who is all good. But if these truths are really true, once again, why does suffering exist? We see it on a global scale from COVID to Ukraine. We see it in our personal lives from heartbreak to humiliation, from poverty to pain, from disease to death. I know there's not one person in this room that has not been affected by suffering. And as Christians, we worship a God who is great and good, but the question is, why does God not do something about it? We all agree that God, uh, that because God is good, he did not create evil. So I've heard many Christians answer the question this way. Well, it's all Adam and Eve's fault. Or they'll say, well, it was the devil who first sinned and brought sin into the world. And I'd say, yes and amen, you're right about that. But it still raises the question of why. Why would God create the devil in the first place if he knew he was going to rebel? He knows all things, including the future. Why would he make mankind in the first place if, they, if he knew they were going to rebel? Why did God allow Satan in the garden in the first place? Why did God put the forbidden fruit in the garden in the first place? It just raises more questions. 
God was not responsible for evil. He's not the author of evil, of course, but we're still left with the question of why did God allow it to happen? Why does he continue to allow it today? Well, in John 9, we have an answer to that question. In John 9, we have one of the clearest teachings on suffering in all the Bible. There is a reason God has allowed suffering into the world, and it's found in John 9. And if you pay attention to what this chapter has to say to you this morning, you will be able to endure any heartache, any hardship, any trial or tribulation. But but listen to me, if you ignore what John 9 has for you this morning, then you're always going to be mad at God. You're going to live a life of constant frustration, not understanding the purpose of the suffering you're going through. So that's what's on the table before you. That's the two options. My prayer for you this morning is that you would understand the purpose of suffering so that you can endure whatever suffering would come your way. Because in John 9, we find three truths about suffering. The first truth about suffering is this. Suffering exists to glorify God. Suffering exists to glorify God. We find that in verses 1 through 7. The second truth about suffering is that followers of Jesus should expect suffering. Followers of Jesus should expect suffering. We're going to find that in the big section, the story of this uh, verse, the verses, the passages of these days in verses 8 through 34. And then finally, you can endure suffering if you have Jesus. You can endure suffering if you have Jesus. We're going to find that in verses 35 to 41. So let's start with the first truth about suffering. Suffering exists to glorify God. Look with me to verses 1 to 2. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In ancient Israel, being blind meant that you couldn't work, oftentimes couldn't marry, couldn't get a formal education. Being blind meant that you had to rely on the charity of your family or of total strangers. So often blind people would go to the entrance of the temple and beg because that's how they had to survive. And one of Jesus' disciples saw this blind man begging and he thinks, oh, that reminds me of a question I've been meaning to ask. Apparently, many of the Israelites believed that there was a direct cause and effect relationship between the suffering that you were experiencing and sin that had been committed. This is, this is the way they thought. God is all good and he's all powerful. Therefore, if anyone is suffering, they deserve it, of course. And now in their defense, all suffering is indirectly caused by the first sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, they introduced death and disease, sin and suffering into God's creation. And, and of course, there are many cases where suffering is the direct result of sin. Sometimes you and I sin and we suffer because of the consequences of sin. I heard one preacher say it like this. There's a reason for everything, and sometimes the reason is you're stupid. <laughs> sometimes we sin, and the consequences of our sin is what we feel. If you speed and you get a speeding ticket, that is not unjust suffering. You deserve that. If you get drunk and you get a DUI, that is your fault. We understand that concept. There's also many, many times in the Old Testament, however, where God causes people to suffer or allows them to suffer, I should say, when they're in fact righteous. In fact, one of the most famous examples is the book of Job, where Job suffers, he loses all of his possessions, he loses his home, he loses his family and his health, precisely because he was a righteous man. But this disciple in John 9 has forgotten all about the book of Job. He thought the reason this man was born blind 
is because he's being judged for some, uh, some sin. There was no question about it. There was only two options in his mind. There's no question that, that sin has caused this. The only question is whether or not he's being judged for his sin or the sin of his parents. But look at Jesus' response in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man has suffered for decades. He's been an outcast. He's been isolated. He's been poor his entire life, never known anything other than that. Why did God allow this suffering to take place? Jesus tells us it's not because God is not good, but precisely because he is good and because he desired to pour out mercy on this man. Here Jesus is saying, you want to know why this man was born blind? For this moment. And then look what he does in verses four through five. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus knew that his time on earth was limited. We're about five or six months away from the cross at this point. And he's telling us there's coming a day in which no one will be able to work the miracles that Jesus did. And then he repeats what he said in chapter eight. I am the light of the world. And he's saying, as long as I am here, as long as I'm alive, as long as I haven't gone to the cross yet, I'm going to live up to that title. How is he going to do that? Well, look at what he does in verses six through seven. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is such a weird scene. When Jesus turned the water to wine, he did not wave his arms. He did not even command the water to change. He just willed that the water changed and it changed. When Jesus healed the man who was disabled, he just told him to get up and he got up. But here, Jesus doesn't do any of that. He, he, he goes above and beyond. He, he goes the extra mile, so to speak. He spits and he makes mud, and then he tells him to go wash. And it raises the question, why is he making mud? Well, I think, first off, that Jesus is calling our minds back to Genesis, calling our, our minds back to the creation of man, where God formed man from the dust. And so Jesus, in a way, is recreating, is remaking this man from the dust. He's restoring this man's health to the way God designed it to be in the garden. But that still leaves us the question is, why does he tell the blind man to go and wash? Well, by going to tell the man to go and wash, he's reminding the Jews of the prophet Elijah. Prophet Elijah once told a man named Naaman, who had leprosy, to wash seven times in the Jordan River and be healed. Story goes that Naaman refused to wash himself because he was upset that Elijah could have simply healed him on the spot. And Naaman uh, did not do that. And thankfully, a friend of Naaman talks some sense to him, and eventually he does go into the Jordan, washes seven times, and he's healed of his leprosy. I think Jesus, by telling this man to go wash, he's communicating to everyone around him that he's a prophet just like Elijah was. The difference, of course, in this story is that this man does not delay. He doesn't complain or doubt. When Jesus, the one whom God has sent to earth, sends this man to the pool, which means sent, he goes, he washes. And for the first time in his life, he sees. I want everyone right now, everyone within the sound of my voice, close your eyes right now. I want everyone to close your eyes. Put yourselves in the shoes of this man. You've been blind your entire life. But you've heard about this man, Jesus. 
You probably even heard some of his preaching in Jerusalem and you've heard the stories of his miracles. You're sitting at the temple gate begging for money and you hear a crowd coming and someone from the crowd says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And as you're listening to this, you're reminded of the shame you've felt your whole life. You wonder, was it my sin? Was it my parents' sin that I'm like this? And you hear another man say, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And you're sitting there and you're listening to all this. And the next thing you know, someone is spreading something cold and wet and grimy over your eyes. And the same man speaks up again and he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Maybe you're expecting to be healed like Naaman. Maybe you had no idea, but for whatever reason, you walk to the pool of Siloam, which is not that far away, and you wash off the mud and you open your eyes. Now, everyone in this room, slowly open your eyes and imagine what he saw. Imagine what he felt. But for the first time, the rays of light entered his eyes. That for the first time, as he's washing this off, not only does he feel the droplets of water fall off his eyelids, he sees them drop one by one. And he turns around and he sees the city of Jerusalem and he sees the temple of God after a whole life of being in the darkness. This man was born blind for this glorious moment so that Jesus could heal him and that the works of God may be shown to the whole world. Amen, somebody. That that glorious healing, all those years of pain were leading up to that moment. God allowed this man to suffer so that a greater and more glorious thing could happen. So that something that he he never would have expected, something that we could not even have imagined that was better could happen and occur. And that's where we learn about the first truth of suffering in this passage. Suffering exists primarily to glorify God. Suffering exists to glorify God. But that's not where the story ends. The second truth about suffering is this. Followers of Jesus should expect to suffer. Read on with me to verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. The neighbors cannot believe what they're seeing. The scene is so unbelievable. They do not trust their own eyes. There's no way this is the same man we know. So they ask him to tell them the story. He recounts it. And they ask him where the man is who, is he, who healed him. And the man says, aren't you listening? An hour ago, I was blind. I went away from him. I literally physically could not see where he had gone. He doesn't know where Jesus went. And look at what happens in verses 13 through 16. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So it was the Sabbath, or now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. 
The Pharisees were considered the holiest and the most devout men in all Israel. They loved the Bible. They loved the law of God. So much so that they added rules to the scripture that would prevent anyone from getting even close to breaking God's laws. And one of their rules was that you could not make mud on the Sabbath. Originally for building bricks for a house, which is very different than what even Jesus did. And here's the kicker. Anyone who broke the Sabbath, the punishment was death. But let's be clear. Jesus did not break the Sabbath by healing this man or by making the mud. The Sabbath is a beautiful command of God given to man that we may spend one day a week resting and worshiping him. And it's important to say that Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath here. Jesus was and is sinless. He didn't break the Sabbath. He broke the tradition of the Pharisees, which honestly needed to be broken. Listen to me, church. God's word is perfect. And it's not a little holier to add to it. It's actually demonic. It's legalism. It's a special kind of arrogance to say that God's word is not enough. So let me improve it by adding a couple rules that aren't in there. When God shuts his mouth, he knows what he's doing. And that's why Jesus is so relentless at challenging the Pharisees' legalistic ways. And so the Pharisees, they're divided. How can a Sabbath breaker be from God? On the other hand, how can someone perform this miracle if he's not from God? And because they can't agree, they ask the man who was born blind. They turn back to him. So look at me to verse 17. And they say, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. It's obvious to this man, Jesus is acting like the prophet Elijah so clearly. He, um, he's, he's a prophet like Elijah. And, and uh, now we know that Jesus is far more than a prophet. We know that at the end of chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And by saying that, Jesus was clearly claiming to be God. But this formerly blind man doesn't know that yet. So we keep reading in verses 18 through 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak of himself or for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. You notice the Pharisees, it's, it's not because they doubt anything. It's not because his testimony was unreliable, but it's simply they did not like his answer about who Jesus was. They don't accept his answer. There's no way this man could be a prophet, so they have to do some investigating. They, they call his parents to the stand. They confirm that his son was truly born blind, but, the, but these parents are afraid of the Pharisees. They're afraid of being kicked out of the temple. So instead of marveling at the miracle in front of them, instead of seeking out and trying to follow this prophet who healed their son, they pass the buck. They say, our son is old enough. Ask him. We don't know anything. So the Pharisees return to the blind man in verse 24. So, they can, they, uh, so the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The Pharisees go back to the man who was born blind and they make it very clear what they want him to say. By saying, give glory to God, they're saying, if you, if you disagree with us, it's because you're a sinner. 
Don't rob God of his glory. Agree with us that he's a sinner. The irony, of course, is that these Pharisees, if they really wanted to give God the glory, they would have recognized God's power and they would have followed God's Messiah. But the man born blind does not give in. He gives a simple but profound testimony of what has happened to him in verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Despite the threats of intimidation, this man stands up to the Pharisees and doesn't say what they want him to say. This man who has had no access to formal education because of his disability takes on the most educated people in the country. And he tells them, I don't know about all this stuff with the mud and the Sabbath, but I know what I know. I was blind, but now I see. And this is the story of every Christian. Every single person, when they first believed the gospel, went from a state of spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Every, to every person who believed the gospel has undergone this transition. What is the gospel, you may ask? The gospel is that you and I were created by Almighty God to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. But instead of enjoying him, we found our hope and our happiness and other things that he created. Instead of glorifying him, we belittle his name. We belittle his glory. We break his commandments. We fail to give him thanks for all the good things he's given us. We rebel against his rule and his authority. We run from his life and we live lives of spiritual darkness by living our lives the way that we want, pretending to be our own gods and living for our own glory. And the entire time that we're actively rebelling against God, we're rebelling against him with the air that he has given us to breathe and the lungs that he has given us to process and to take in that air. And here's our greatest problem. God is good. And he's a good judge. And that's bad news for guilty sinners like you and I, because it's appointed once for a man to die and then comes the judgment. And because God is good, he must punish those who are not good. He must punish those who are guilty. And all those who are guilty will be condemned to what the Bible calls the lake of fire, the punishments of hell. But God, in love, sends Jesus to live the life that we have failed to live. And then he goes to the cross and he suffers on that cross and he drinks the wrath of God that is owed towards guilty sinners like you and me. And as on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied and he was buried in a tomb. But three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, proving that he was who he said he was. And now all men everywhere are commanded to repent. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in what Jesus has done, then you have gone from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. All your sins will be washed away if you repent and trust in Jesus. This is the gospel. Amen, church? That is what we believe. That is the message of every Christian. You may not know much. Your faith may be weak. There still might be a lot about the Bible or theology that you don't understand. But if you have turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus to save you, if you have been born again, if you were blind but now you see, then you have a testimony that no man can contradict. And you can say with boldness to the Pharisees and anyone else in this world, I was blind, but now I see. Amen? Amen. Verse 25 is the simple testimony of every Christian. And it's beautiful. It's glorious. But sadly, it's a testimony that is often not received well. 
Look at verses 26 and 27. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Did you hear that? This is the third time this man has been questioned and he is done being asked. They do not want to hear the answer. So he doesn't give it to him. They want him to agree with him and he realizes this. And so he mocks them a bit. Do you also want to be his disciples? And the insult hits the mark. And so this is what they do in verses 28 through 31. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Do you hear the pride in the Pharisees' voices? We are disciples of Moses. They're so proud. But if they were actually Moses' disciples, if they actually knew Moses and took his word seriously and wanted to be like him, they would have followed the one who Moses taught about. And it's interesting here, the man is, is basically repeating the other side of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were decided, d- divided earlier. And in verse 16, they said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? He's really just repeating what the, some of them are saying. But he adds something very interesting in, verses, in verse 32. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. A lot of us were raised in the church. A lot of us were raised hearing the story of of Jesus healing people. We know that he heals the blind. So this story is not amazing to us because we've come to expect it. But listen, of all the prophets of the Old Testament, of all the miracles of the Old Testament, not a single blind man was ever healed. Even though since the world began, no one had ever opened the eyes of of a man born blind. If you read the Gospels, not only does Jesus heal the blind, but it's also his most common miracle. You see, healing the blind was a miracle reserved for the Messiah. Messiah. Isaiah 29 says that in the day when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will see. Jesus healing the blind was so significant that that whenever two of John the Baptist's, Baptist's disciples, they go to Jesus and they're going on behalf of John and they ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? What's the first thing Jesus says to them? He says, go and tell John that the blind see. And this uneducated man, born blind, realizes something that the Pharisees have missed. He's putting two and two together, and he boldly declares, this man must be from God. This has never happened before. Don't you see where this man is from? He is from God. And naturally, the Pharisees are not happy with this man's response. And so look at what they do in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. The Pharisees believed what Jesus' disciples believed in verse two. Your blindness is a sign that you were born in sin. So how dare you try to teach us? And this man becomes the first follower of Jesus who becomes persecuted. He's kicked out of God's temple. He's kicked out of God's synagogue. And he's already an outcast again, not even a full day with his sight. And he's already an outcast in his own community. And this is the cost of following Jesus 
There is no ceremony, no amount of money, no amount of good works required to follow Christ. Salvation is a gift by grace through faith apart from works that anyone is saved. But Jesus also warned us that if we would follow him, we should expect to suffer. And this man who was born blind gave up any chance at a peaceful life to follow the one who gave him sight. So not only does suffering exist to glorify God, not only should followers of Jesus expect to suffer, but you may be wondering, how can we endure this suffering? Well, you can endure suffering if you have Jesus. Look with me to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? We don't know what Jesus was doing between verses 8 and 35. But once this man is kicked out of the temple and Jesus hears about it, he seeks him out. And how does this man respond? He's so happy to see Jesus. He's eager to believe in the Son of Man that Jesus is speaking about. And that's amazing. Because naturally, you'd think that he'd be upset. Jesus, I just lost everything because of you. My family did not stand by me. I'm an outcast again. I can't even go into the temple or the synagogue to worship. But that's not his reaction. You might even remember at the beginning of John 5, there's a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus heals him. And he is, undergoes the similar expectation. He goes to the Pharisees. And Jesus, after, finds him and he says, go and sin no more. But instead of following Christ, he goes again to the Pharisees. And he doesn't follow Jesus. It wasn't worth it. The cost was too high. So how on earth does this man find it able to give up everything to follow Jesus? Because in the words of Jim Elliott, the missionary, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This man is face to face with this prophet and he's about to find out who the son of man is and nothing else matters in comparison. And look at what Jesus says in verse 37. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. In verse 37, just like with the woman at the well, Jesus chooses to reveal his identity to this man. He declares that he is the son of man. Now that title may not mean much to you and me, but in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel wrote about a son of man who is gonna ride on the clouds in heaven and all the nations of the earth are gonna come and they're gonna worship this son of man. And here in John nine, Jesus reveals that he is in fact the son of man. And the man who was born blind responds exactly the way he should have. He worships Jesus as God in this moment. And notice Jesus does not reject his worship. He accepts it happily. When, when people worship Peter in the book of Acts, he immediately rebukes them and says, I'm only a man. Also in Acts chapter 12, when King Herod was worshiped and received worship, he did not stop the crowd. He did not rebuke the crowd. And immediately Acts 12 says that God killed Herod where he stood. But when Jesus receives worship, he does not stop the man. He gladly accepts the praise because he deserves it. Because Jesus is the almighty king of creation, the son of man who is deserving worship of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every uh, nation. But sadly, of course, again, this chapter ends with not everyone having this reaction. Look at me at verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. 
Jesus came into this world to save the world. But by coming into the world, the hearts of the people were revealed. There was a judgment upon the people because as a natural reaction to Jesus coming to save, the people were split up into two groups. Those who received his message and those who rejected him. Those who were proud and religious were revealed to be spiritually blind. And when Jesus came, often it was the worst sinners who came to the light and repented of their sins. And for once, the Pharisees seemed to understand what Jesus is saying perfectly. So look at how they, how they react in verses 40 through 41. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus ends this chapter with a proverb saying, if you Pharisees recognized how blind you were and you came to the light, you could be forgiven. But instead, you pridefully claim to have sight. And because of that, your sins remain on you. This is a dire warning for everyone within the sound of my voice. If you don't think you need a savior, that's actually evidence of how blind you actually are. Humble yourself. Admit how blind you are and come to the light of the world and you will have all your guilt washed away by his sacrifice. My prayer this morning was that you would understand the purpose of suffering so that you could endure whatever suffering comes your way. Because in John 9, we found three truths about suffering. We found that suffering exists to glorify God. The followers of Jesus should expect to suffer and you can endure suffering if you have Jesus. So how should we respond to the suffering that's all around us? What's the point of the sickness and the disease that we are experiencing, the pain? Is there any point? Is there any plan? Is God really good? Is he really in control? And if he's good and if he's in control, what is the point of everything that we are experiencing around us? Well, I have two pastoral charges for you. I have two ways I think we should respond to the suffering around us. First pastoral charge, trust in God's uh, response to suffering. Trust in God's response to suffering. First, what is God's immediate response to suffering? His response to suffering of the world was to send his son in the flesh to suffer like us and then die for us. We worship a God who understands our suffering, not just because he is all-knowing, but because he has experienced it through Christ and he did that to save sinners. This is primary response to suffering. So trust in the one who suffered for us. Second pastoral charge. Uh, Let me see. Oh, no, let me say this. Jesus ends this chapter with a dire warning. And let me just tell you, no one is born a Christian. All people are born into spiritual blindness. And you need God to do a miracle to save you. You need your eyes to be open. So has Jesus saved you? Has God saved you from hell and forgiven your sins through the blood of his son? Has the good news of Jesus so radically transformed your life that you are not the person that you once were? If you haven't experienced that life-changing moment, then you are heading full speed for the judgment of God. In this life, you, you and I experience much suffering that we don't deserve, but there is coming a day when God will judge all of mankind and there will not be an ounce of suffering in hell that is undeserved. So let me plead with you today. Repent of your sin and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. Turn from your sin, turn from trusting in yourself, turn from trusting in anything that's not Jesus and trust in what he did on the cross and receive the grace of God. Because though your sins are like scarlet, his grace will make them as white as snow. 
So this is actually the second pastoral charge. I got a little mumbled here, but this is the second pastoral charge. Trust in God's plan for suffering. So first, trust in the one who suffered for us. Secondly, trust in God's plan. There is no pointless suffering in God's plan. No matter what trial you're going through, no matter the pain that you are feeling right now, none of it is meaningless. None of it is without warrant or reason. He has a reason for everything that he does and everything that he allows to happen. Ephesians 1 tells us that God works all things together for his own glory. Romans 8 says that he also works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's how he's running the universe. Never forget what Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God has allowed sin and suffering into his perfect creation because somehow, however mysteriously it may seem, there is a greater good that will come out of it because he allowed it in the first place. Something so much greater than if God had not allowed that suffering to happen in the first place. If God had never allowed sin to enter the universe, then God could have never showed his his mercy, his grace, his wisdom in saving wicked sinners. If God had never, never allowed suffering, then we would know nothing of Christ's cross or the gospel or the goodness of God. Let me ask you, is God more glorious because of the cross? And I'd have to say yes. But if he doesn't allow sin into the universe, then we have no cross. We have no salvation. If you were as good and loving as God is, and if you had all the knowledge that God has, let me tell you, you would not change a millisecond of God's plan for the universe. If you had all of his knowledge and you were as righteous and holy and good as he was, you wouldn't change a thing. And that's unbelievable to us that are experiencing extreme suffering around us. But let me, and even as you wonder, God, why am I going through this? Why is this happening? You have your answer. Every time that you suffer, you are suffering so that the works of God might be displayed in you. You and I experience suffering in this life so that God would receive the glory. And you may be thinking, but Taylor, I'm suffering, but I haven't seen any healing around me. My eyes haven't been opened like this blind man. I'm feeling pain. There's cancer around me, there's sickness, there's disease, and none of it is being healed. What do you mean? And let me just ask you, are you sure about that? Are you sure none of it is being healed? Let me tell you, Philippians 3 verse 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his power will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious bodies. There is a healing coming for every saint in this church. And I don't expect, honestly, just in my own experience, I don't expect it in this life. But there is a guarantee that you and I will experience a healing more fully than this man experienced in John chapter 9. And on that day when you receive that renewed body and all the healing and sickness that you is just thrown from you, God's works and his glory will be displayed in you. There's a day when Christ will return and he will end all suffering. The blind will see, the disabled will walk. There will be no more sun because the glory of God will be our light. And on that day, all of our suffering in this life will feel light and momentary compared to the glory that we will see together. The greatest joys that you've experienced in this life will pale in comparison to that day when you see Jesus face to face and you get to worship him 
like the blind man did in John 9. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.